Hello, and welcome. This week on Soundtrack Alley, Erica Christie and I will break down Flight of the Navigator from 1986. We'll discuss a bit on the cast, the background, the score by Alan Silvestri, and more. It all starts now. It's great to have you on with me today. How are you doing? And what was your first experience with this film? I'm doing good. Thank you so much. Um, I, you know, I saw little pieces of this, you know, now and then on TV when I was a kid, but I don't think I ever really saw the whole thing all the way through. Uh, so kind of watching it from beginning to end for this podcast, I think was pretty much my first like full experience with the movie. Um, overall, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I mean, as an adult, it, it probably didn't ring quite as much with me as it was for a kid, Mm -hmm. but I think it was a, it's a really, really wonderful kids movie. Like it's something that they could follow, something they they could understand. And I would say my favorite part was probably when the boy first comes back and he meets his family. And like, I think they captured really, really well what it would be like being a child and coming back and your parents are older, your little brothers, now your big brother. And just like, sort of like the horror and the happiness and the shock and the, you know, love. And like, they just like just kind of bouncing back and forth between all those emotions. I think they did a really wonderful job of capturing that and kind of, you know, letting any kid who's watching it kind of understand how difficult that situation would be. Mm-hmm. And I think that put them in the main character's shoes and they were able to follow David like all throughout the movie because of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, for me, I grew up on this movie. Like, I mean, my parents had the Disney Channel for a short period of time because it was expensive back then, back in the early, late 80s. And uh, now it's not quite as expensive. And soon they'll have their own streaming service. So, you know, Mm -hmm. people can look forward to that. But I grew up knowing this movie inside and out. And I loved the sci-fi aspect of it. Um, I didn't really know the actors that well. I didn't really understand who really was in it. Like Joey Kramer. I mean, he was... an fairly unknown actor at the time even though he was in over the top and probably a handful of disney movies and um and then paul rubens the voice the voice of the robot and he was credited as someone else um paul mall i think i believe it was 
Yeah, yeah. I I can't quite remember his reasoning for that, but that was his choice. He didn't, yeah. He wanted it to be a surprise. I don't know if it was like a you know just kind of he wanted people to listen and be like, oh, that's Pee Wee Herman or mm-hmm. or what it was. But that I know that it was his decision uh, to go by uh, the other name. And it might have been a really good decision because he wanted to be taken as say a voice actor, you know, someone different, even though he used his. Pee Wee Herman persona in the robot form, but you know, for like ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, one of the key people in it was Cliff DeYoung. He did so much television, like he did all these mystery television shows. I mean, he was on Diagnosis Murder. He was on Murder She Wrote. He was on RoboCop, the TV series. He was on, yeah, he was on so many of these like serials from the 80s and 90s. And I mean, he was a well-known actor. And then, of course, we get Veronica Cartwright. um, And she is most famously known for playing a character on Alien, at least for me. Um, What about for you? Where did you remember seeing her before? Uh, yeah, I would say in my head, that probably is the movie that jumps to first. Um, and <laughs> a little bit of side trivia, she thought she got the role of Ripley. And she actually showed up, she showed up to film the first day and found out that she didn't have the character of Ripley and was kind of angry and it caused some tension on the set. So whenever I hear her name, that's kind of the first thing that I hear of. But yeah, she's a wonderful actress and she's done many, many other things. And I don't think I've seen her in anything where I haven't liked her. So yeah, yeah she did a wonderful job in this too. Well, see, she certainly did get a chance to wail on Sigourney Weaver in that movie. <laughs> yes. You know? <laughs> And it was real. It wasn't staged. It was real. Yeah. It was real. I mean, people can go back to my Alien episode and realize that. So, um, And then this was a really early role for Sarah Jessica Parker, um, who's most famously known now for Sex and the City. And then um, we have Matt Adler, uh, who is from, like, The Day After Tomorrow, and, of course, this film. And then Howard Hessman, uh, who was on Head of the Class, WKRP's in Cincinnati, that 70s show. He was known for a lot of early 90s, uh, well, 80s and 90s uh, comedies and stuff on television. So, um, Yeah, I watch WKRP all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's pretty good. And for my... Uh, Kansas City people, they can appreciate WKRP in Cincinnati because for the worst comic podcast ever, they do WC, let's see, where's WC podcast, PE in Kansas City as a t-shirt and it's in the lettering of WKRP. So, oh my gosh. Hey, I have one of those shirts, so, and it's really comfortable, so, uh, fun stuff. So, let's, let's get into some of the stuff. So, you know, initially we had first talked about Paul Rubens, that it was his idea, uh, to have the identity of the actor hidden, 
as a mystery, and that was certainly different. Um, a lot of times in the movie, it seemed like Max was just kind of a side note in the film, even though at times he played a very serious robot character. And it was almost like he had an inborn like AI to him that he was a, an actual creature. He wasn't just a robot in the movie, you know? And, uh, then, like, Cliff DeYoung and then Veronica Cartwright, who played David's parents, they both appeared in The X-Files. And, of course, we all know The X-Files centers around extraterrestrials and their technology and government conspiracies. And this is kind of, you know, similar to what that was, <laughs> you know? Yep. Such a big theme, especially in the 80s and into the 90s. Yeah. And then one of Sarah Jessica Parker's earliest roles. And I think she, she did a pretty good job, uh, playing the character and Howard Hessman played a good, good role as a scientist and <laughs> trying to get to the bottom of, of things. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. He could have played his part really cheesy and over the top. And it felt like he was kind of trying to keep him like as a real person. Mm -hmm. I mean, getting done what, the higher ups are telling him he has to do, but it really kind of felt like he was trying to keep the character as, you know, a person that did care about David, but still needed to get answers to, you know, what was going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really liked that even going into some of the like technical aspects of it, like the, one of the prop holes uh, was refurbished and is now the topper to a drink station in Tomorrowland at Walt Disney's World's Magic Kingdom. So that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever gone there and sat underneath it? I have never been to uh, Walt Disney World. So have never been able to afford it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that is probably on my bucket list mm. that I've never done. And so many of the things that are in this movie, they used, uh, you know, for some other th means for Walt Disney Studios or the theme parks and, and stuff. Like, they used part of the ship. Um, it used to be used to... Yeah, it was in a boneyard um, as an exhibit of the back lot tour. And they used the ship like that. And uh, I just found it really unique in the movie like when they actually find the ship and this is spoiler alert and for anyone who's not seen this well stop the podcast and listen to it later after you've seen the movie but uh okay so now we're gonna talk more <laughs> when they go and find the ship and it's just floating there among the electrical construction and stuff and then they're like well how do we move it how do we get it onto the the thing and one of the construction workers are just like well look and he just holds his hand to it and it moves on its own and I just I really like that aspect of it having that very sci-fi feel like you know no other movie had that in it before like you know no one would be able to just touch a ship and it would move on its own and so they constantly were trying to 
retain that mystery of what was inside the ship. Why could they not see inside or anything? And, uh, you know, I, I really like that aspect of it. So being a little kid and, and understanding how monstrous that ship was, but that it was levitating and you could just kind of move it a little bit, that was the most intriguing thing to you about the ship? No, no. There were a lot of things that were really <laughs> intriguing about the ship. But but one of the first, you know, mentions of, you know, where you first see that ship and mm. the mystery is already there. And it's like, well, how can it move on its own? You know, mm-hmm. what kind of ship is this and where does it come from? You know, those key questions start rolling around in your head when you see it. So, but then, um, like one of the things when Max and David escape the NASA facility, they travel precisely 20 miles from the point of origin and it took them like 35 seconds and their speed was 2,000 57 miles per hour. That's crazy. <laughs> ouch. Yeah. <laughs> My answer is ouch. Exactly. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> is, yeah, David's not in, in any kind of chair. He's not strapped in. He's not, like, in water, which actually protects you, like, if you're traveling really fast. He's just uh, kind of a little boy in a big tin can. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, I mean, just some of the things about the movie itself, it seemed like it was a very independent movie. Like, even though it was put out by Walt Disney, I mean, the main production company was called Producers Sales Organization. And it put up two-thirds of the budget, and the rest came from a Viking film, which was a Norwegian company. And then, of course, Walt Disney picked up the rights for the movie, in North America, and then that distribution came under new management by Michael Eisner. So I thought that was mm. that was interesting. Yeah. Disney actually passed on making the movie. They wouldn't put any money towards it at all. But once it started getting made, they then agreed to do the distribution. So yeah, it was it was very much a shoestring, just you know, get it done any way possible, just because they wanted to make the movie so bad. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Disney actually passed on it and then later picked up the rights to huh. distribute it. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, and then, uh, so what do you think initially of like? The NASA facility, do you think it was, you know, more realistic or were they going for like semi-fantastical, like, or what do you think? Um, I, I mean, I think it was somewhat realistic. Um, it, it felt to me like they were still kind of trying to keep it a secret. So they were, it was more like they were sort of off on the edge, like, you know, in a secure warehouse, like on the border of the main area. Like if they had brought it into like the center of NASA and were like trying to do set dressing for something that big, I don't think it would have worked. Um, but because of the production design and they were kind of trying to keep the budget down. I think it, it worked well that they were kind of trying to keep it secret. There wasn't, um, well, there was a few dozen people around, but other than that, there just wasn't a lot, you know, of people around. There wasn't a lot of traffic, you know, around them. So it, it, yeah, I think they, they were, they were kind of trying to make it not in the middle of the NASA area. They were kind of making it off to the edge just so people weren't noticing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if I think that's what they were going for, and that's definitely what they accomplished. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
and I I really found that to be true too. And uh, the the point about it is that <laughs> uh, in many of the scenes, in in a lot of ways, you could tell this film was definitely an independent film, and it was filmed after the significant change of the movie um, rights of you know what a movie would allow. And I believe it's the only, the second movie that Disney allowed to, I mean, even though it was their, um, they were just, you know, putting it out. They were distributing it. You mean like the rating system? Yes. The MPAA Because it was PG. Gotcha. It was PG. And, I Mm -hmm. mean, they still had the S word in it, and then they said the GD word, and, you know, it's just like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's <laughs> definitely an independent film because <laughs> they got away with it too, which was interesting. I mean, you know, it just it made it interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of points about it. I mean, the film takes place in 1978, and then also, ironically, it takes place in 1986. Who knew? The very year that it gets released. <laughs> So some I, and then getting back to like the NASA headquarters and David's bedroom, they were built on a soundstage in Miami's Limelight Studios, and so the FAA tracking station for Southern California was the site for the several of the scenes, while the interiors and assorted hangars stood for in NASA's property, and so the AI's alligator farm which is interesting, a general store and dilapidated roadside attraction were filmed at the BR Horse Ranch owned by Burt Reynolds. So that was kind of interesting too. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, there were so many different things. There was adverse weather conditions that they had to encounter. When they were filming, uh, especially in L.A. and then also Texas. And a lot of the movie takes place outside. And, I mean, sure, there's plenty of time when they're filming inside the ship. And they make it seem a lot smaller than what it probably was. Because they probably had to make it seem smaller. And, I mean, you know, they have that giant screen at the front of the ship. And you wonder... Well, how did that even, you know, <laughs> get to be that way? And, you know, whatever. And cameras at that time were enormous as well, because obviously they were still using film cameras. So film cameras, uh, all the audio equipment was all on film. So, yeah, either either the room was enormous and they were just filming it to make it look small, or they built that particular big silver pod thing where pieces would come off Mm -hmm. and they could just you know take you know a third of it away and then roll the cameras up yeah Um, I couldn't really tell which way it was by the way they filmed it but yeah they definitely had to do a lot of magic uh, to get those giant cameras in a space like that yeah oh yeah (laughs) and then uh, I thought it was interesting when Max uh, describes the animals on board he mentions this one called a Finastaris from the Pixar elliptic, and then five years later, Disney acquires Pixar uh, to be the special effects computer company. 
which is truly <laughs> unique. <laughs> uh, and then I found it interesting that part of the production moved to Norway um, for shooting different sections of the spacecraft uh, when it was transported. And as you're talking about, they did distribute it in four sections uh, to the outskirts of Oslo. So they reassembled it, and two identical ships were built and only differed in weight. And the lighter was 700 pounds and was only solely used for the flotation sequences. And then the heavier ship was 1,450 pounds with the full interior, and it was made out of aluminum. So that was interesting too. You didn't re- I didn't realize that they would be that heavy. Yeah, the lightest one was 700 pounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, granted it was huge, but I mean if you're only using that one for floating, you could make it much much smaller um and then just cheat the scale and make it look bigger. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is what they've done in movies for decades. Yeah, you don't have, you know, a giant octopus. You've got a little tiny octopus and you just make it look big. So yeah, they Definitely could have made it smaller and just faked <laughs> faked the outside. But, I mean, if they were there and they had it, then it always does make the footage look a little better. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, if if, uh, if that company in Norway put up a third of the, you know, cost of making the movie, um, then, yeah, they probably did request that some of the filming <laughs> came there. So yeah. <laughs> if yeah. it was a nice part of Norway, it was probably awesome. If they had to sit in the snow the whole time, I don't know if the actors would have been quite so excited about it yeah (laughs) yeah that's very true and uh oh and then you know when you look at the different um oh props and different things that were in the nasa facility such as the automatic closing doors the locks the uh double-sided windows um the robot the robot in general that delivered pieces um were food or whatever (laughs) it was just kind of an odd facility because it's almost like he was a prisoner in this building uh, because he couldn't go anywhere but uh he was able to get around with the help of that robot so what do you think of all that uh, yeah, I thought the robot was a nice touch. Um, again, especially for a kid's movie. Um, you know, kids like things like that. I mean, nowadays we see it a little bit more often, but certainly at that time, you know, a giant robot that can move around and, you know, doesn't. you don't have to have a remote control for it. It can move itself from one place to another. It would definitely make David feel like even though he's only eight years into the future, definitely feels more futuristic to him. Um, And it also kind of shows him how high the technology is in NASA itself. Mm -hmm. So kind of making him, it's fun, but it's also very much like a fish out of water thing for him. Um, So yeah, I really liked the uh, touch with the robot and how fancy and technical everything it was. It it just, it made him more uncomfortable if that was even possible. Mm Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting things I thought about is, you know, we were talking about numbers with how fast they traveled into space and how fast it took them, you know, to get into space. Then it, (laughs) one of the note points that I found was that it talked about 
the fictional idea of how long it actually took David to get to the fictional planet of Phalon. And it took 4.4 solar hours while 8 years had passed on Earth. And it would have been a factor of 16,000 when which time was slowing. And it corresponded to a speed of about 99.9999998% the speed of light. So, I mean, that's got to be really fast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, their theory was right. Their math isn't quite right. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. But their theory was right. Their theory is right. And most movies don't even get the theory right. Yeah. Like, Contact has the theory backwards. So the fact that they at least have the theory right makes me happy, even if it's not, (laughs) if if the the math doesn't quite check out, at least the theory is right. So I appreciated that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, what is a solar hour? How long is a solar hour? You know? Is that just how fast light travels in one hour, I assume? Yeah, I would think so, maybe. Yeah. Um, I actually have that written down somewhere, but I'm not going to look it up. Okay. It's far. Okay. Light moves very fast, (laughs) so it's far. (laughs) I mean, the sunlight gets to Earth in eight minutes. Oh, okay. And just think of how big of a space that is. that's 93,000 miles away. Yeah, so, you know, that's only eight minutes. Just imagine how far sunlight gets in one hour. It's it's far. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, that's, you know, that's good to know. Um, okay, so why don't we start talking a little bit about the music, unless you have some other thoughts on the film itself. Do you? Um, my only thought is, are they ever actually going to do the remake they've been talking about for 10 years? What? Remake? <laughs> I had a feeling, I had a feeling. Seriously? Out. Well, the thing that's confusing, it about 10 years ago is when they first started talking about it. But the thing that people are confused about is that they keep using the word reboot, Ugh. not remake. And yeah. nobody can understand what they mean because it wasn't a series and it's not the movie's not going to be a sequel, so reboot doesn't work. So it, there's some confusion, but yeah, I think 2009 is when they originally started talking about it. I can't remember if it was Disney or somebody else, but that company went away. And now, as of like September, November of last year, they're talking about it again, and they actually have someone working on a script right now. So, wow. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. So yeah, it is. It's now, also... Just because someone's writing it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Yeah. But someone yeah. is, right now, as we're talking, someone <sighs> is writing it. It's also kind of frustrating (laughs) because, you know, sometimes some movies shouldn't be remade. They shouldn't be rebooted. They Mm. should just be left Mm. alone. Like, Mm. I've heard talk of them remaking the first, or, well, rebooting the first Alien movie. And Mm. it's like, why would you do that? Leave it the way it was. Mm -hmm. So I agree. It just, the only positive I've heard about the remake is that uh, the Jim Henson company's name has been thrown around many times. So I if see they that. are involved, if they are involved, I'm guessing there's going to be more robots and more creatures. Mm-hmm. And those are going to be awesome. 
Yeah. I can't guarantee the movie's going to be good, <laughs> but whatever part Henson does, I'm sure that part will be awesome. Yeah. Well, when you get the Jim Henson Company involved <laughs> and the fact that Jim Henson Company can actually do a well-developed movie with some really fantastic practical effects or even with practical creatures or robots or whatever they use, they really like to highlight those key factors of an original idea. So that's what I like. And, you know, when we think about the music for Flight of the Navigator, you know, who knew that this was this independent film and they could get a award-winning uh, Alan Silvestri who composed the music to Back to the Future, No Mercy, Romancing the Stone, um, I mean, Forrest Gump, The Mummy Returns, The Polar Express. You know, these are films that are high on a film composer's list and even a music, like someone who appreciates a film score, you know, those are music scores that people are familiar with. But with Flight of the Navigator, he scaled back a bit and used a lot of electronics for it. And, I mean, it was feeling, you know, like it had some synthesizers in there. And, but still, there, even to me, there were scenes in the film that made it uh, more mysterious. Like when he was traveling from uh, his home in the future to the NASA facility and he was hearing the robot communicate with him and it was a very you know mysterious kind of almost creepy vibe to it that he was the only one that could hear it and you mean when the ship was talking to him like yeah. inside his head yep yep yeah that's exactly what I mean but there was that music overlay behind it that just gave you that like mystery of you know what's really going on so i don't know mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. just one of the thoughts yeah yeah and i uh it this was this movie was somewhat early in sylvester's career so a few of the movies that you mentioned obviously were after mm -hmm. this movie so oh this yeah was still a yeah. bit early in his career um and i did read that he used a lot of the synclavier which is this really weird, just another one of those strange kind of creepy synth electronic things that you make a bunch of noises with. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's a few tracks where I, I genuinely can't tell if it's the synclavier or if he brought in actual instruments. Because mm -hmm. um, from what I can from what I read, he did almost the whole score with the Sinclair. Oh. So it was just okay. it was just very 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 interesting for me listening to it and trying to figure out is that real? Like is that a real violin? Is that a timpani? Like I, I just I couldn't even like tell <laughs> at times yeah. if it was a real instrument or if it was just him like mimicking the sound of a real instrument. Yeah. Which as you said kind of gives you this like weird creepy feeling. Mm -hmm. Um Part of it is the story, and part of it really was the Sinclair, because it is a very, very odd instrument. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the the very opening credits, you know, when you first see, like, this... <laughs> it's so funny, because at the very beginning of the movie, you see this flying saucer, 
and it's actually <laughs> a frisbee, and it's at a mm-hmm. uh, dog catching frisbee tournament, which is mm. something that they don't do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> But it was neat to watch, even in the movie, because it's like... Well, the humans humans do it now. It's all yeah. ultimate frisbee competition, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the humans said the dogs don't get all the fun. We need some of the fun, too. <laughs> yeah, but it was sure fun watching those dogs <laughs> actually try to catch some of the frisbees and actually catch some of them. It was pretty cool. Uh, so... That, I mean, that's one of the key moments I liked about the movie, um, about this, about that part of the score, and uh, so, so now we'll we'll get into playing a few of the cues from the film. Uh, first, I'd like to play main title, David in the woods and transporting the ship. Now, I really like how Alan Silvestri gives us this element of mystery, like I've talked about throughout <laughs> this entire podcast. And he doesn't provide a lot of backstory. Uh, and I don't think that's what we need in the film. We don't really need a ton of backstory for kind of this simple uh, sci-fi film. And I, I think it can still work. You know, I mean, a, a film of this uh, small scale can still be effective, even with the limited score that uh, Sylvester used. What do you think of that? Uh, yeah, if by backstory you meant we don't know really where the ship comes from, yeah, uh, I definitely agree with that. I mean, we hear we hear a little bit as the movie goes on, kind of what it's doing a little bit, but uh, yeah, I don't see. I mean, again, as a kids' movie, you know, it, the kid doesn't really care where the spaceship came from. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the fact that it kidnaps someone is kind of what the important thing is. So yeah, just jumping right into the movie and, you know, Sylvester just kind of going along for the ride, I think was wonderful. Um, and I especially liked the David in the woods track. Um, and that's the one that sort of feels like there's a chorus in it, mm-hmm. which again is the synclavier kind of imitating humans. And that is always kind of gives you this like uncomfortable feeling in your stomach because you're hearing like it's what sounds like voices and like moaning and people oh, yeah. dying. And yeah. like, it's just yep. like it, it, it got real creepy at times. And uh, yeah. And again, the track is David lost, you know, David in the woods where he's lost and then he gets kidnapped. So it, it, it fit wonderfully well with what was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's go ahead and play those cues.
So next, I'd like to play The Ship Beckons, Robot Romp, and The Ship Drop. Now, to me, these represent how the action begins, how David realizes that he has this connection with the ship, uh, and knows that it's on the NASA property. And he also needs answers. He needs to figure out why he's eight years in the future. You know, what exactly is happening? And I think Silvestri's score really gives us that benefit, like like provides us that that key element of the back back part of the the music story to carry us through David's journey. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially with the robot romp, uh, I liked that it was really upbeat. Um, it had a very driven tempo, and it was just always sounded like there was like computer sounds and like all the synth stuff in the background. Mm-hmm. And for me, it felt like I-, I could be anywhere on Earth, and I could just hear that song coming from another room, and it'd be like, oh, that's a science fiction movie. Mm-hmm. Like it just like he he got it to work so well, like inside the movie um, that it just works seamlessly and and you almost you don't realize how cool the music is some of the time because it's fitting so well with what you're looking at yeah so yeah yeah that's how i feel it's a very (laughs) for me it's it's a highly nostalgic feel because i remember listening to the music and it like it it really made an impact on me uh for when i originally listened to it and, and watched the movie and i just you know Whenever I hear that track, I know that it's the last starfighter, or not last starfighter, but the flight of the navigator. <laughs> I think of the last starfighter in that way too, because the last starfighter is one of those films that has a very key mm-hmm. element of the score, and so mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to tell Ooh. those two apart. David could probably grow up and be a last starfighter. Yeah, he probably could. So, why don't we go ahead and play these cues?
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's main theme music. Um, you can find his work at xanderscores.com. Lastly today, I'd like to play Have to Help a Friend, Flight, Shadow Universe, and Finale. Um, this was some of the early work for Alan Silvestri, and he had just come off, you know, a really high production value film such as Back to the Future and really set some standards for what a science fiction film really could be. And then it it, it changed to this unique and independent score that Disney distributed. So what do you think of these specific cues and even the overall score? Uh, specifically, I liked the two cues in the middle, the flight and the shadow universe. Uh, flight, it's high octane, it's fun, um, but of course, there's still just a little bit of fear thrown in there. Um, you know, the ship is off doing all kinds of crazy things, and again, I, this is that one of those tracks where I, I'm not sure if it was violins or if it was the synclavier pretending to be violins, mm-hmm. but they just kind of kept coming in in these like repeated high screechy notes that just kind of grated on you, oh, and it just yeah. it, it was fun, but then it, you would get this no, this this awful noise in your head and you would be like oh wait it's still tense it's still uncomfortable like I'm just watching all this stuff happening and it was kind of this back and forth of you know fun and speed and still um, being nervous and then the shadow universe was the kind of the opposite end it was creepy and it felt like you know it was like boiling water Mm -hmm. like tension and bubbling and simmering and churning and uh, whether it was real timpanies or fake timpanies again I'm not sure (laughs) but it just yeah it just kind of had this you know horrible feeling in your stomach and Mm -hmm. you know Poor little David was just trying to, <laughs> just trying to survive and get back to his family. So, yeah. Um, oh yeah. Overall, I think Sylvester did a wonderful job. Uh, it was a great science fiction score. It was a great 1980s score. Mm-hmm. It was a great score for a children's movie. I mean, I think he pretty much hit all the boxes that he was going for. Mm-hmm. And it was a surprise. Like you know, to me, mm-hmm. it was a surprising score that it actually hit some key moments, like some really 
uh, memorable moments that if you heard it again, you could be like, oh, yeah, that that's that track or, you know, things like that. So, um, so yeah, I, I appreciate your input on that. Um, where can people find you, Erica? Uh, yeah, the best place would be my website, which is ericachristie.com, E-R-I-K-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E.com. Uh, yeah, you can find my other podcasts, videos, photos, all kinds of crazy stuff on there. Yeah, and you can <laughs> you can find me through SoundtrackAlley.net, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, Facebook, uh, Stitcher Radio, and find me on Twitter at RandoAndrews1, and even email me at SoundtrackAlley at Yahoo.com. Um, I hope everyone has enjoyed this show, and until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.